We'll start first <coughs> with the Honorable Molly Williamson, and um, I will not introduce her because you have the introductions in your handout ma materials that uh, were distributed when you came in. But suffice it to say that she is one of the very few Americans who have worked at the deputy assistant level in four uh, of the cabinet uh, positions in the United States. You don't find people like this with this kind of empirical education and experience. The Honorable Molly Williamson. Thank you so much, um, John. Am I okay here? Can everybody hear? If not, I can just scream or something. Um, uh, this this is a particular honor uh, for me to uh, join with this uh, wonderful panel uh, to uh, review uh, the history of uh, both uh, the uh, GCC as an organization and uh, U.S. interests uh, as they have continued uh, and evolved with this uh, critical region uh, over, over that period. Um, as, as John has mentioned, the uh, organization was uh, itself established uh, 31 years ago as, a, as an economic and strategic uh, uh, grouping uh, to brace against what was then seen as uh, regional turmoil um, uh, coming uh, through and uh, uh, following the Iran-Iraq war. The organization of uh, these uh, critical uh, six states um, has been designed to develop and promote mutual benefit and mutual security uh, for this uh, critical region. This is not an easy matter. Uh, and it's not unique to this particular collection of countries to have uh, concerns, tensions, uh, and differing uh, ways of approaching shared problems. Uh, I point to um, the European Union, for example, uh, as struggling with um, uh, perhaps a common goal, but a different focus on uh, agenda, priority, timing, and the like. Um, this is uh, also uh, not lost on the GCC member states as they look to trying to develop uh, common currency, common customs schedule, or a federation-like union. It's not easy. That they choose to embark on this uh, endeavor and to maintain the overarching goal of mutual benefit and mutual security um, in such a difficult circumstance, such a difficult area, um, is, is, uh, is to be noted and applauded. So what are some of these challenges uh, to regional security, regional stability, and tranquility? Um, and, and these, my, my colleagues, fellow panelists, will uh, explore in, in, in greater depth. Um, certainly, there has been a, a, a constant of um, uh, risk of war, risk of violence, um, uh, both spilling over from the Iran-Iraq uh, war of, uh, uh, of um, almost a decade. Um, and uh, the concern about Iran's um, intentions, um, never mind the nuclear aspect, there is a history of uh, hegemonic aspirations that have worried um, this region for some time. 
What this has meant as a way of trying to respond uh, to these uh, challenges, to these tensions, has meant more joint exercises, a sharing of goals, a sharing of operational uh, effectiveness, uh, focusing on not just military but larger communication uh, challenges to share interoperability, uh, share uh, common um, uh, interests. Um, another aspect, of course, has been the risk that uh, extreme violence, uh, even terror, uh, may make vulnerable critical infrastructure, not just of the um, uh, oil-producing uh, uh, installations, um, but of larger uh, concern for uh, public law and order and, and stability. And what this has meant has been greater cooperation and sharing in terms of critical infrastructure protection. Uh, and in terms of uh, shared um, uh, efforts in communication and, uh, and alertness. Unemployment. This is itself also uh, a powerful challenge. We are talking about a region uh, in which uh, the majority of the populations are under the age of 20. Uh, and to have talented um, but unemployed young people is itself a tremendous uh, challenge. And so uh, the power of the demographics of the region have caused these countries to uh, approach opportunities uh, for development, to coming up with their own programs, coming up with uh, proposals for creating more jobs. In some cases, that has meant uh, a whole um, uh, um, embrace perhaps with some reluctance at times, of uh, WTO requirements, opening up the economy so that there could be greater uh, interest and confidence in the foreign direct investment community to come in to invest, create jobs. Uh, similarly, uh, proposals uh, to uh, explore and in some uh, cases to bring to fruition free trade agreements, uh, which have uh, redounded to um, mutual benefit uh, of the parties. These, uh, these issues uh, have also um, brought a certain um, awareness of the volatility of these economies uh, heavily dependent on one commodity, oil. And that has put a greater emphasis on uh, the, the volatility of the marketplace, the power and the burdens of being swing producers in the event of, say, uh, enhanced sanctions uh, on, on Iran, for example. The need to develop um, more alternative fuels or to uh, work on um, the environmentally responsible options that may be available, whether it's carbon capture and sequestration for the Saudis in, in um, enhanced oil recovery, whether it is um, peaceful nuclear energy um, that uh, we've seen out of the Mubadala uh, uh, initiative uh, in the UAE. And oh, by the way, that's a model in case Iran was looking for a way to um, develop its peaceful nuclear energy um, in, in a way that the international community can embrace. And uh, finally, a, a, a greater policy reach from this grouping. Uh, at a time when there is uh, widespread regional unrest, 
there has been an, uh, a willingness, an openness uh, to uh, have as the group uh, speak uh, about concerns with respect to Libya, uh, speak with respect to concerns about Syria, even so far as to take uh, the cases to a larger uh, sphere in the Arab League and to the United Nations Security Council. Um, uh, the, the approach is not itself without controversy. It is not easy to achieve consensus. That is not unique to this part of the world. Um, witness uh, the Security Council's uh, uh, conduct uh, o over the last 60 years. So um, th these are these are challenges. The group is itself determined for the for the purposes of mutual benefit and mutual security, tranquility and stability, uh, to do these very difficult um, uh, measures. And finally, I I cannot um, avoid mentioning uh, the importance for this region of seeing some progress on an Israel-Palestine front as well. For governments to be or be seen as tolerating um, uh, uh, what is uh, so um, dramatically portrayed as um, an uneven, unbalanced, uh, difficult um, position of whether you use the word occupation or not, um, the, uh, this relationship costs those governments uh, not trying to be part of a solution. And to that end, uh, there has been a, a very uh, dramatic effort from, uh, at the time it was Crown Prince Abdullah, today King Abdullah, uh, to promote uh, a recognition that there is no military solution to this issue, uh, that it must be a negotiated um, uh, outcome, um, and that uh, in the process uh, there should be protection for those who might fear coming to a conclusion, coming to an agreement, coming to uh, some uh, uh, approach that requires profound concession and compromise. And uh, that initiative has been endorsed by this body, has been endorsed, the GCC has been endorsed as well by the Arab League. Um, and so that also has been part of a uh, political uh, reach. I, I fear I'm overrunning my time, um, but these, these various aspects of common uh, concern to all six of these countries uh, the political, the strategic, the economic, the trade, all of this is very much on the plate, very relevant, very much of the day. Uh, and um, we, we will have experts coming uh, forward to, to talk about the, the various aspects of them. But um, uh, it's an extraordinary time, a very challenging time, uh, and one uh, in, in which this particular group uh, is rising to the fore uh, to, to try to address these issues, not paper over them, not run away from them, uh, and, and that is to be recognized. Uh, thank, you. <coughs> thank you, Molly. Uh, we'll 
have next uh, Dr. Uda Abedin and ask that each of the speakers do your best to uh, remain within 10 minutes and not more than uh, 11 and a half minutes in your presentations. Uh, thank you. No, thank you, Dr. Oba, Oda Aberdeen. Hey, John, <clears throat> I agree with you that in Washington we have many people with opinions on the GCC but very little knowledge. And you can apply the same to the whole uh, region. What I'm going to do is uh, focus on the economic and financial aspect of the GCC as it relates to the global economy and in particular to the U.S. economy. First, uh, when we look at the GCC, it possesses 40% of the world oil proven reserves and 25% of the gas reserves. At the moment, the GCC is producing nearly 16.5 million barrels, which accounts for 20% of the total worldwide production of oil. In 2011, the GCC exports reached $538 billion. In 2012, they could range from $530 billion to as high as $570 billion. In 2011, these countries accumulated over $350 billion in surpluses and their foreign exchange holdings by the end of 2011 reached $2.3 trillion. We hear a great deal about China. Everybody's talking about the Chinese foreign exchange reserves of $2.3 to $2.5 trillion. Why did these reserves go up? One is the price of oil. In 2003, the average price per barrel was $30. A barrel. In 2011, the average price was almost $92 a barrel. Secondly, the investment policy of these countries were overly conservative, and we have seen the results of that conservatism in what happened after 2007, 2008 when we had a financial crisis that hit the U.S., that hit Europe, and we still have a financial crisis because of Greece and potentially Portugal and Spain. Now, if we look at Saudi Arabia as an example, the Saudis had the most conservative policy. They invested the bulk of their assets in U.S. Treasury notes and bonds, and when the market stumbled in 2008 and 2009, the value of the Saudi bond portfolio jumped. Uh, secondly, they did not engage in speculation nor in investing in subprime assets like many of the U.S. institutions and European institutions. And you can say the same about the rest of the GCC. The UAE has followed a similar policy, Kuwait, uh, Qatar, and also Bahrain. In 73, I recall, John, when the price of oil jumped, everybody was telling us how the Arabs are going to take over the world. They're going to take over CBS and IBM and you name it. And uh, there was a great deal of worry. But as we have seen, 
they have not done that. They have purchased some equities in major U.S. companies, IBM, Microsoft, Time Warner, and uh, they also have done the same in Europe and in Asia. So they have pursued uh, a conservative, prudent, sound policy for nations that hardly had a banking system prior to 1970. You had very few banks in the region. In 1970, there was no Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Sama had a small staff. Since then, when you look at the financial sector, you see that they have built good professional organizations with corporate governance. If we look now at the banking sector, uh, the banking sector in the region in the past five years have again been prudent. They have not really suffered from the financial crisis. Uh, these banks are liquid. They have a good balance sheet. However, you can say banks in Kuwait and the UAE have a big exposure to real estate investments. So if the price of oil were to drop, if the world economy were to retreat because of what's happening in Europe, the real estate prices could come down and that could have impact on the earnings of some of these banks. But as we have seen in Dubai, when Dubai had difficulties, the public sector in the UAE, mainly Abu Dhabi, stepped in, made an advance to Dubai, helped Dubai restructure its debt. And today, three years, four years later, Dubai is back on stream. And here we really have to uh, realize that the UAE government realized there was a problem. It had to be addressed quickly. You cannot just do it piecemeal. So by stepping in, giving a bailout to Dubai, that led to a new restructuring of Dubai's debt. And now the situation in Dubai has improved. The banks in Dubai are on a sound footing. Historically, uh, the GCC's uh, investments have been mainly in the US. They have invested in Europe. They have invested in Japan. They have invested in the region. But the U.S. has been the largest recipient because the U.S. has the largest capital market. The U.S. has the most liquid market. And U.S. assets were seen as being the safest. Therefore, they in pursued a policy of investing in U.S. bonds, mainly U.S. government bonds, in bank deposits, and in real estate. If we Look at the financial transactions between the GCC and the U.S. They involve the following. First, U.S. exports to the GCC have been increasing. Last year, the UAE was the largest export market for uh, the U.S. Exports were over $15 billion. Uh, Saudi Arabia was next. Then you had... Uh, Kuwait and Qatar and Oman and Bahrain. But aside from the trade exports, there is the services sector, which benefits the U.S. balance of payments and creates jobs for Americans. Here we're talking about the services sector, which includes military sales. It includes tourism. It includes 
consultancy businesses by American firms in the region, American universities that are engaged in the region, and the number of Arab students from the GCC who come here. So if you look at the services sector, it has been a major contributor to the U.S. economy. And you could say it probably has averaged maybe over $30, $40 billion a year. But keep in mind, part of that are military sales. So in sum, uh, the GCC, from an economic perspective, has been a major market for the U.S. It has been a recipient of billions of dollars. And there are maybe 50,000 Americans working in the GCC. And that also adds to the financial benefit that arises from GCC-US uh, transactions. Now, as we look at the GCC and we look ahead, you know, today the bulk of the income arises from oil, from refined products. These countries have substantial assets. But if you look 50 years down the road, in my view, the GCC countries have to think about human capital and education, because if you look at the West, the productivity, the innovation came because of good education, especially in the area of science and technology. And a lot has happened in the region. If you compare the educational system today with 1970, 1980, you have many, Amer many American universities, you have colleges of science and technology. However, we need to see the Arab region create a venture capital culture where people with money can invest, can bet on people with talent, people with ideas, and can become venture capitalists. The GCC trading community and merchant community has been excellent in terms of trading. But I think looking ahead, 50 years from now, you have to think into venturing out in addition to trading into new areas of technology. And the question I always tell my friends in the region, at some point down the road, we need to have an Arab Bill Gates. We need to have an Arab Google. We need to have an Arab MIT. There are resources that people are intelligent but how do we move into this culture where today in the U.S. and in Europe, many of the jobs that have been created have been created in the last 30, 40 years. And it has come from brain power. It has come from research and development. And uh, I think the GCC country is moving in that direction. But the private sector has to go from trading into venture capital into investing in people, and also in opening these countries to Arab nationals who have talent, who are engineers, who are scientists, who could contribute 
to the technology of the future by either giving them permanent residencies or they choose nationality. Thank you. Thank you very much, <coughs> Dr. Abedina. <coughs> Ms. Rhonda Fafi Houdon. Thank you, John. Is this on? Yeah, okay. Um, so today I'd like to examine whether or not the GCC has a comprehensive energy policy. Um, and not just in the traditional sense of the word for traditional sources of energy, but I'd really like to focus on something that is not highlighted regularly, which is the renewable energy policy, which is picking up certainly in the GCC countries. So with respect to cooperative, energy uh, cooperative policy on energy sources, of course, four out of the six members of the GCC, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE, are members of OPEC. Um, collectively, as Oda mentioned, they are responsible for almost half of the world's oil reserves. Um, of course, we've heard the latest news on cooperative efforts on gas production, a gas pack, if you will, of which some of the members of the GCC are extraordinarily active in. And of course, there's even cooperation between the GCC countries, uh, the producer countries, of course, and the consuming countries. Based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, the International Energy Forum highlights and encourages cooperation between producer and consumer countries. So I would say in the traditional sense of the word, there is a sort of comprehensive uh, energy policy. But is there such a policy when looking at renewable energies? Now, individually, I can go through all six countries and give you examples, and I certainly will, of the strides that are being made within the renewable energy sectors in each one of these GCC countries. In fact, I was speaking to an official from one of the state-owned oil companies the other day, and he indeed confirmed that this particular country within the GC is aggressively pursuing renewable energy, not only a policy, but renewable energy programs. Knowing, of course, that there is an end to the traditional sources, but also is a matter of diversifying their economy and certainly creating jobs. So starting with the UAE, of course, I think everybody is familiar with Mazdar City, a $22 billion project that's going to rely primarily on renewable energy sources, a clean energy city, if you will. Um, as a target, uh, Abu Dhabi committed to $15 billion or a 7% target by 2020. That means 7% of their energy to come from renewable energy sources. Uh, again, the United Arab Emirates is home to the new International Renewable Energy Agency, uh, which will be an international home for many to come and learn about new technologies. And the UAE, of course, was very famous, as Molly mentioned, for bidding out the 14 peaceful uses of nuclear uh, power plants and did it certainly the right way. In Saudi Arabia, they themselves have set their target at 10% renewable energy by 2020. Um, most recently, they announced that $100 billion is going to be devoted to nuclear and renewable energy at the King Abdullah City for atomic and renewable energy. It's called KCARE. And the KCARE program is going to begin with rounds, two rounds of bidding on solar, photovoltaic, wind, geothermal, and waste to energy capacity. In Oman, Oman just announced that they are going to be investing in solar power technology uh, to start with some of the lower outputs, a 10 to sort of 50 megawatt 
uh, demonstration projects with the possibility of working their way up to 200 megawatt solar power projects. In Bahrain, they just recently announced, and this is news all, by the way, from the last month, in the month of May, they just announced that the first phase of their national energy plan is going to generate energy from renewable energy sources. And through an interesting consortium consisting of their national oil and gas authority, the Bahrain Petroleum Company, and uh, Caspian Energy Holdings, they are going to uh, create a five megawatt solar energy project uh, using technology from a U.S. company called Petra uh, Resources. And so this conglomeration of international sources coming together to create um, a solar energy plant in Bahrain. Uh, in Kuwait, the Kuwait Institute for Scientific Research has a renewable energy program and they just announced again that they're going to be focusing on a solar energy proje project in conjunction with who? The Kuwait Petroleum Company. So isn't that interesting? And that's going to be one of two phases that they're going to be focusing on. In Qatar, Qatar um, hosts what's called the Alternative Energy Summit. I liken it to sort of a Clinton Global Initiative, but what they do in Qatar is they bring together the investors who are interested in primarily putting their money into renewable energy projects. It's an international conference. It doesn't just focus on the Middle East, but it brings a lot of the investors from the region to focus on the financial aspects of renewable energies. And also in uh, Qatar itself, their science and tech park has focused on the development for technologies of some 60 different uh, projects in the solar area. Now, when you talk about funding, of course, there's no lack of funding in the GCC countries. The internal funding themselves, uh, uh, coupled with the Islamic Development Bank, uh, many of you may or may not be familiar with the Islamic Development Bank, but they are the development bank of the Islamic world, the 56 member countries in the Islamic world. Uh, they're very similar to the World Bank, and they just announced recently that they are going to put $250 million into uh, an initial project for renewable energies in their member countries. And their member countries, of course, include all of those GCC countries. And they're focusing on everything from wind to solar to nuclear. Um, now, what does the GCC need then? If they've got these renewable energy projects going, what is it that they need? Um, I found it interesting that Ernst & Young just came out with a study where they noted, and they weren't specifically talking about the GCC, they were talking about the broader MENA region, that there is a lack of a renewable energy or a clean energy policy, that there is no framework for implementation and strategy. What they were highlighting was that auctions and tenders are no substitute, if you will, for a comprehensive policy. And a comprehensive policy, of course, means legal and regulatory framework. And what this Ernst & Young study found was that it was clearly lacking in this region. Um, what is or what could the GCC do then to create more cooperation amongst themselves in the renewable energy area? Well, through my research, I have found that the GCC actually has something called the Clean Energy Business Council, where they bring together the public and the private sector entities within the GCC that are interested in working on renewable energy projects, it's local, national, state, and international integration of all these. And what they do and focus on is they're trying to assist the governments 
in developing policy frameworks, policy frameworks that would not only encourage the development of renewable energies, but would also help detract investors. Because as many of you know, what investors want is a solid regulatory framework. I was even delighted to find that the EU and the GCC are cooperating on the uh, renewable energy front. In fact, this, this month, uh, two weeks ago, in Doha, um, in Education City, the GCC and the EU got together um, to discuss a variety of clean energy projects and research and tech and policy um, in energy efficiency and carbon capture and a variety. So the question is, then that leaves us with, what is the United States and the GCC doing on renewable energy? Um, and I've researched and researched, and if any of my colleagues are here from DOE, I welcome you to, to stand up. Um, but I haven't found much. I haven't found much. Um, I think two things that the United States does well um, is regulations, policy framework, and technology. And I believe that if the United States and the GCC did come together in some sort of initial conference, if you will, or some sort of formalized structure, the United States certainly can be helpful. And even I would argue sometimes we're overregulated in this country. But that is one thing that we do do well is regulations and legal framework. Um, the other idea, and I certainly have talked about this before, is this idea of technology. We have incredible technology in this country. What we don't necessarily have in this country is the financial ability to support not only the development of that technology, but taking that technology to market. I give you the solar industry as one perfect example here in America. I constantly get asked, why aren't we using more solar here? Why aren't we using more solar? Bottom line is, we just don't have the financial ability to be able to develop that particular industry here in America. I would argue the GCC has the financial resources, the United States has the technology. Let's get together and do more on the renewable energy front. I'll be happy, certainly, to answer any of your questions on this topic and other issues. Thank you. Thank you, Rhonda. <clears throat> now we've heard from uh, four non-governmental individuals, um, and we'll segue to three who work for the U.S. government and uh, are constrained by policy uh, issues, but also enabled by policy matters. And uh, we'll start with two from state and then conclude with one from DOD. Joshua Yaffe. Thank you very much, Dr. Anthony. And it's an honor to, to be up here on stage with you and these wonderful speakers who did an excellent job so far. And I would agree with everything they've said. Uh, at the GCC summit, a little less than two weeks ago, as you may have read in the newspapers, there was an announcement that they may at some point explore the idea this year of union. Of uh, It's not clear quite what that means. The idea that gets tossed around is this is some sort of a confederation that would uh, involve greater integration than currently exists in the GCC. A lot of newspapers and commentators expected that, that there would be an announcement of, of sort of a, a preliminary confederation of Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, and maybe exploration of, of a greater integration later on down the road. But that's not exactly what happened. What happened was uh, Foreign Minister Saud al-Faisal, uh, Prince Saud al-Faisal, made the announcement that they will continue to study the idea of a GCC union, and perhaps at the next summit they will they will revisit the idea once they have had more time to consider this. He made a number of other statements. And, and what you had, uh, though, 
uh, in spite of this measured and tempered approach to such a, a concept, what you had was a, a, a very vocal reaction on the streets, uh, the streets in, in Iran and, and certainly among some protesters in Bahrain and some Iraqi uh, Shia politicians all certainly felt that this was a slight to uh, the public in Bahrain. Although, although if you read the Bahraini newspapers, you find there are multiple opinions that this is not entirely uh, viewed upon negatively by the Bahraini people or the certainly not the Bahraini government, which supported this, this idea. Uh, so there are mixed opinions on different sides regarding that matter. But it was certainly a heated debate and a heated issue, and there were enough differing viewpoints in the newspapers about what this means, uh, where this leads to, that it's worth exploring. I think it's worth worth mentioning and discussing, even if nothing comes of it in the foreseeable future. Uh, and it prompted a couple questions from colleagues of mine uh, in the building as to what were the conditions 31 years ago that created the GCC uh, the first time around, and what is similar, what is different today. So I thought it would be interesting to go back to some of the, the analysis and commentaries from 1980, 1981, when this was first being discussed. And what you find is a, a very nuanced uh, version of events. Uh, as as uh, Molly said earlier, Iran and the Iran-Iraq war was certainly a, a, a primary concern on everyone's mind. Iran then as now posed a, a number of, of dangers and threats to the region, and the, the war was certainly a problem for everyone in the Gulf. But there were a lot of other things that came out of the, those first meetings, as, as Dr. Anthony can surely attest to. He's written eloquently about these, these first initial meetings, and he was certainly uh, on the scene for many of them, for all of them, I believe. Uh, probably one of the only people that, that can say that, for sure. Uh, so some of, the, some of the concerns from sort of the, the secondhand reports that you get at the time are that uh, uh, South Yemen was a concern in the Strait of Hormuz. Oman, in particular, uh, Sultan Qaboos was worried about both of those issues. Uh, Sheikh Zayed, uh, after the summit where they announced the, the formation of GCC, had a press conference where he, he unequivocally stated the UAE's right to control Abu Musa and the Tums, the three disputed islands. Uh, but he called for a diplomatic solution not a military solution to the problem. So a lot of this will sound very familiar to today. I think you'll recognize a lot of these, these same concerns in what we talk about now. We had a, a, certainly a lot, of, a lot of press, be a lot of paper being spilled over the three disputed islands just a few months ago, and the same perspective taken by the UAE, which is certainly a, a wise and, and, uh, and a peaceful approach to the problem. Uh, the GCC, uh, at, the, at its initial setup, they created a $6 billion investment fund, which is little known today, but there was a lot written about it at the time. But when you read the analyses from 1981, what they felt was uh, the suspicion was that this fund was really intended for GCC internal use. And when I say that, that what you read is, is uh, analyses that, that talk about uh, this fund is a chance for Saudi Arabia and the other oil-rich GCC states to provide a, a sort of a assistance fund for Bahrain and Oman. 
which again is similar to what we saw two years, uh, a year, a year and a half ago at the beginning of the uprisings, the proposal for a $20 billion fund for those two countries that was floated about. Uh, there was also, back in 1981, uh, discussion of, of a monetary union. That, the idea of a Gulf dinar had been around since the mid-70s. Kuwait was a big proponent of it at the time. Uh, but, of course, economists thought, given the current economic climate, again, 1980, 1981, that that probably wouldn't be occurring right at that moment, uh, a monetary union. Again, we talk about the same thing today, given the current economic climate that we have right now. Um, perhaps most interesting is that the United States back then had proposed in 1980 uh, the, the use of a rapid deployment force in the Gulf, and the GC states did not take an immediate uh, opinion on that. What they said instead publicly was that they did not believe that foreign countries should have basing uh, access on the peninsula or in the region. They did not object to a military presence. That they did not explicitly uh, or publicly object to a U.S. military presence in the Gulf. Uh, they simply didn't want uh, troops or bases stationed on their soil. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about parallels with recent years. The the most of all these analyses uh, all discuss. Well, a couple of them discuss a fascinating thing, which is that. Okay, so you had a revolution in Iran that toppled the Shah, and the the countries that became the GC states were certainly worried about about revolutions spreading throughout the region, which was a very real concern back then. Uh, but even more than that, they blamed the United States for not supporting the Shah enough, and they felt that the United States could have saved the Shah and pro and kept him in power if it had wanted to and tried to. Uh, so there was a lot of hurt feelings over the U.S. involvement uh, or position regarding the Shah before he fell from power. Um, but I think the most interesting analysis is, comes from The Economist, from, from right after the February summit in Taif, where the GCC signed a defense pact. This is the prelude to the announcement of the Gulf Cooperation Council. And in that, The Economist draws the conclusion that this defense pact that led to the creation of the GCC, uh, it's, it's a new strategy to maintain the stability of the regimes uh, to, to uh, improve the, the incomes of Saudi, this is considered a Saudi initiative, uh, their living, the living standards of average Saudis to prevent further political disturbances. It was the idea of the elimination of the threat of any popular government taking over power in any of the states by means of close coordination between the security forces in those countries. And they matched it up with a number of initiatives that uh, the Saudi uh, government was taking at the time to provide low-income housing and to provide greater subsidies to its own people. So anyways, those were the analyses at the time. I'm not offering my opinion as to whether I agree or disagree with them now. That was what people thought. That's what they, they considered. Those are the ideas being floated around. But again, today, when we talk about GCC Union, we have the same problem where a lot of people don't understand. They, they are unsure of, of why this is being discussed or floated or, or proposed. And to, to lead towards my conclusion. I know this is a lot of a lot to take in and a lot of talking, uh, so I'll try and be, be kind to the audience here. Um, the opinions that you read today in the, the analyses about 
this proposal for GCC union. Uh, there are a lot of there. There are both negative and positive views. A number of the the newspapers and the GC have been running editorials that are quite positive, and yet you, you do read a lot of, of dour assessments of of this proposal. And what you read in the sort of the, the more negative reviews, the more skeptical opinions about this union, which I thoroughly disagree with, but it's important to at least acknowledge their presence is that uh, the idea of, of a union is nominally a gesture directed against Iran, but in fact the idea comes from the fear that popular uprisings could spread into the Gulf. Again, we saw that opinion in The Economist's view from, from 1981. Secondly, a lot of these more negative opinions say that there's no need for a union because if, as the, the GCC says, that the laws, institutions, the religious and social practices of each GCC state will continue to be respected, then why do you need anything more than what you have now in the GCC secretariat? And third, kind of browsing through the, the range of negative opinions that you read out there, you read that uh, Saudi Arabia is advocating for this union, King Abdullah is, but the, but the people, the publics of these societies haven't bought into this concept, and there's been no effort to try and get there, their accession. As a friend of mine says, you can kind of sum all this up by, by uh, a joke that a friend of mine always makes, but, but there is some, some veracity in it. And uh, he says that, you know, some people borrow money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like. And, uh, and that's what a lot of these negative opinions, if you want to think of them, sort of, uh, are, is what they're kind of commenting on. I disagree with, with those things quite, quite vociferously. Iran certainly poses a threat to each of the GCC states. Uh, and certainly there are concerns about Iraq after the U.S. withdrawal and instability in Yemen. These, these states have those fears, and those are, are fears that cannot be ignored. Uh, and union is about more than just military and security cooperation. There is a peninsula shield force. Uh, clearly, the idea of proposing a union involves much more than, than simple military defense and security issues. Secondly, the, the GC secretary would have to go undergo a lot of changes in order to create a union. That's true, and that will involve uh, a lot of, of organizations, institutions that certainly in theory could in, impinge upon the, the national sovereignty of these countries. But I don't think that necessarily has to be the case at all. Uh, and there's no reason why these individual states have to abandon their consultative councils or the sort of progress that they are all making towards greater participation, political participation. They all have made steps, albeit modest in some cases, but significant. And there's no reason why that has to be abandoned by, by GCC union. And third, uh, even if you do not have a GCC union, if that never comes about, the secretariat is going to have to uh, develop more robust institutions, uh, more standing committees, more of a permanent presence, just to manage the high level of activism that they're already involved in and, and the high level of activity that Secretary General Zayani is, is accomplishing right now very ably, I might add. So just uh, to finish off, I would, um, I would note that I think the important thing is that, yes, King Abdullah supports this, King Abdullah uh, supported sort of a more robust role for the Peninsula Shield forces a year and a half ago. And again, he supported a few months later the, the concept of inviting Jordan and Morocco to join the GCC. And now he is supporting a, a, the idea of a union or a greater confederation of sorts, whatever that form will take, the, 
the commission that was assigned to study this union proposal hasn't issued publicly its report. Um, so King Abdullah is searching for something. He is searching for an answer to a question he has. And I don't know if he's found his solution yet. I, I will see what happens. But uh, I, if, this, if this doesn't work, if union isn't the solution that he's looking for, then what's the next step? Where do you go from there? Uh, these are certainly three different approaches that have been floated, and, and if it's not the end, then what is? Secondly, what confidence-building measures can Saudi Arabia take, and what concessions is it willing to make in order to get the buy-in from its, its uh, neighbors and from its, its partners in this venture? Uh, and third, what can, what can Saudi Arabia or the GC more broadly do to convince its citizens of the benefits of, of a union, of the, the tangible benefits of increasing their cooperation? So that's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Joshua. And next, uh, Andrew uh, uh, Rabin, Great. Department of State. No problem. Well, th well thank you, Dr. Anthony. And, and let me begin by saying I'm truly humbled to be on the panel with this uh, distinguished group of, uh, of uh, practitioners and also in the room with this group of experts uh, and, and uh, fellow practitioners as well. Uh, I'm currently uh, the special advisor for youth engagement at the State Department in the Bureau of Near East Affairs, uh, Office of Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, uh, have been in State Department for about four years, focusing on, on youth engagement for that entirety, first in the Office of the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy, then in the Bureau of Africa Affairs, and now in the Bureau of Near East Affairs. I was asked to come today and give some of the youth perspective, uh, the, the, the youth demographics that, that we're up against in, in the Gulf and in the MENA region at large. So I figured I'd focus my time today on, on three areas. Uh, one being, I want to discuss the current environment that we're operating in from a youth perspective. Two, I want to showcase some of the best practices, uh, tools, programs, and infrastructure that the U.S. government already has in place in the MENA region and in, in the Gulf. And then three, I want to take advantage of, of you all being here and brainstorm, and this will bleed into the Q&A section, and, and start talking about how we can better tackle some of the youth-related challenges that we face in the Gulf. But let me begin very quickly by saying that at State Department and the U.S. government as a whole, we've been trying to make the case more recently that youth engagement is not just a demographic box to check, but a powerful means, a powerful vehicle of tackling your key foreign policy priorities. About a year and a half ago, the State Department launched a, a youth engagement, uh, a youth policy framework that produced a, a document that was released last summer. They also then created a new global youth issues office at the State Department that's spearheaded by a young 24-year-old uh, youth activist named Ronan Farrow. And the secretary has backed up her, uh, uh, her interest with action in, in, in this past February, February 25th in Tunis, uh, gave remarks where she said, young people are at the heart of today's great strategic opportunities and challenges, whether it's building or rebuilding the economy, combating violent extremism, or building sustainable democracies, youth are at the forefront of these issues. And while she was talking in a global context in Tunis, these issues uh, apply even more acutely, I'd argue, in the MENA region and in GCC countries as they're trying to deal with repercussions of the Arab Spring, underlying demographics, current economic conditions, uh, culture, and fast-moving change. Yet there are incredible opportunities and challenges. So let's dive right in. Uh, current engagement environment. Uh, Ms. Williamson noted earlier, or referenced earlier, the massive youth demographic, 60% of the world below the age of 30, 65% of, of MENA populations below the age of 30. Uh, 
high levels of school enrollment have taken place and high levels of graduate rates have taken place in recent years in the MENA region. Positive development, and I think the U.S. government, including many of the folks in this room, uh, can, can pat themselves on the back a little bit in terms of helping to spur that along. Uh, but the problem is that trends in, in the youth labor market haven't kept up with the rising graduate rates and the rising education rates. Brookings estimates right now that about 20 to 30 percent of eligible youth workers in the MENA region are unemployed. In places like uh, Algeria, Iraq, Yemen, we're talking 40 to 50 percent of eligible youth workers unemployed. In places like Bahrain, one of our GCC countries, a number, they, we're, we keep hearing that a number of, uh, of youth grads, very qualified youth graduates of college, remain unemployed. So it creates a critical gap between expectations and opportunities. Many of our youth contacts in the field are doing the right thing. They're going to school, they're getting an education, they're working hard, they're graduating, they're trying to enter into the labor market, they're trying to enter into the political process, and the jobs just aren't there. But it's not just the jobs aren't there, because if you don't have jobs, you, you probably don't have a living wage. You probably aren't gonna be able to move out of your parents' home. If you can't move out of your parents' home, well, you might not be able to, to really court the woman or whoever you're, you're trying to date and get married. Can't get married, you're probably not gonna have kids. Can't get kids, well, you're probably not gonna move to the next transition of adulthood. So it creates this immense, understandable frustration, heightened instability, and also the real potential for exploitation from external factors, your al-Qaeda's in the Arabian Peninsula and other external forces. So there's a, a U.S. imperative and a critical U.S. interest in, in tackling this gap between expectations and opportunities. Uh, similarly, there's a, we're making a hard-pressed effort at our embassies uh, throughout the MENA region and, and the GCC uh, to find out, to, to work with our youth contacts and to, to, to find out where that mutual interest <coughs> lies. Now, I don't know if, are you all familiar with Venn diagrams from high school? You know, you got your big Venn circles. So you got your circle of U.S. interests. Then you have your circle of, of young GCC youth interests. And those are found through your coffees, your relational meetings, your, your contacts, your built-up relationships over time. And then there's that sweet spot in the middle of those two circles, where those are the interests that are overlapping, where, and that's the area we're really looking to play ball in, where we're looking to team up collaboratively and move forward together. And in places like Saudi Arabia or UAE, Bahrain, wherever else, where it's imperative that the, that the government's involved as well, well, maybe you have a third circle below. That sweet spot becomes a little smaller, but we still have plenty of room to move forward collaboratively and, and to play ball in. Some of the current engagement tools. I'm gonna to make the case that State Department has a number of powerful tools in its quiver. Uh, we have our programs and exchanges broken into two categories. Our bread and butter programs, our, our Fulbrights, our International Visitor Leadership Program uh, exchanges, our YES exchanges for high school students, our Middle East Partnership Initiative Young Leader Exchanges, and our Access English Language uh, Scholarships. We, we, uh, we work in 15 NEA countries and train over 11,000 students annually in English. I found out recently that Dr. Anthony actually was, uh, he and his wife were early, uh, early Fulbrighters out in Yemen uh, and were, I'm sure, had a significant role in terms of building people-to-people uh, -people capacity and relationships there. And then we have our innovative new programs. Programs such as Tech Women and Tech Girls that brings young women in the, uh, in the tech business to Silicon Valley or New York for summer internships. Programs such as Youth Entrepreneurship Summits 
as the one we had last year in Istanbul. And in the future, uh, in upcoming December, there's going to be our big entrepreneurship summit in UAE. And we're hoping to, to have some sort of, of youth component there as well. There's an effort to have a global youth jobs alliance. We're having a Coca-Cola partnership this summer for a number of, of, uh, of high school, uh, and, I'm sorry, college and graduate students from the MENA region. So a number of programs, innovative new programs that we're trying to push forwards. We also utilize alumni. Alumni of these exchanges go back to their home countries, and then we try to utilize them and, and, and help them move forward in their respective fields. And then finally, from a, a State Department a, a programmatic standpoint, we're trying to launch youth councils, youth councils at our embassies throughout the world, and particularly in the, in the NEA region. And the idea here is that there, over time, we've built up this amazing Rolodex and, and, and contact list of contacts at our embassies through State Department, USA, Defense Department, our political and econ sections, our public diplomacy folks. And now we're trying to really bring them together, interconnect our, our youth that, that we know, interconnect youth that may not know each other from different embassies or different countries around, around the Gulf and around the greater MENA region, and have them actually advise the ambassador, advise our, our country team on programs, on needs, on the way in which we can better affect their, their lives through, through programmatic aspects. And I'd like to just close by, uh, uh, by raising some, some other youth engagement challenges. Uh, I mentioned earlier, and, and Ms. Williamson did as well, the, the massive youth demographic and unemployment issues and that critical gap between expectations and opportunities. But there are many others in, in, in the Gulf right now. Booz and Company did a, a really nice report that came out recently, and they noted a few of these. The high cost of living, the lack of affordable housing, dissatisfaction with the education system in, current, in, in certain countries, uh, low participation in, in community development and volunteerism, discrepancies in gender expectations. Women in the Gulf and GCC countries seem ready to lead, ready to, to take on positions of, of power and influence. And it's a question of whether those, those men in all cases, are ready to allow them to come into the fold. So how do we, how do we address those? Also, the entitlement culture. There's an entitlement culture for exchanges that we find in terms of, of trying to foster more, uh, more exchanges to, to the United States. So in conclusion, the GCC has an immense opportunity, immense opportunity to harness the creative and economic potential of this youth demographic. As was mentioned by, by Dr. Aberdeen earlier, as, as Gulf countries try to transition from that oil-based economy into that knowledge-based economy, your, your youth are the source of inspiration, innovation, experimentation. They could be the next Bill Gates, the next Mark Zuckerberg, the next Jack Dorsey at Twitter. So how do we, how do we reinvest as Gulf countries and, and, and partners into that youth demographic so that we're actually we're, we're taking a positive dividend from this, this youth demographic. So I really look forward to the Q&A portion. And again, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Thank you, Andrew, very much. Uh, exactly on time. And asking um, an individual to keep us all sharp at the end of this discussion, we have Professor Robert Sharp from uh, the Pentagon's National Defense University, Near East South Asia, uh, Center for Strategic Studies. Uh, Professor Sharp. Thank you. Uh, good morning, distinguished speakers, speakers, partners, and guests. Uh, thank you also to the National Council for the invitation and also for bringing together such an informed group. 
the NISA Centre, where I work, um, has been honoured to partner with Dr. Duke, John Duke Anthony for some time now. Uh, he is a distinguished academic, a regional ex expert, whom we enjoy both a professional and a personal relationship. We always welcome the opportunity to come here to speak and hear views. Today I'm going to speak not on behalf of the Government of the United States, nor the Department of Defence, nor the NISA Centre, but for myself. And in deciding what to say, I've garnered views and opinions from my colleagues where I work, and also uh, from Ambassador James LaRocco, who is our director, previous US Ambassador to Kuwait, who has spent 35 years in the region, and his experience has helped me in drafting these words. Uh, I've been asked to speak about defense and security with respect to the US and GCC interests versus Iran. The so-called Arab Spring, the January 2012 US defense policy pivot and the threat from Iran provides unequaled opportunity for the GCC right now. I posit that this is now a time to establish a formal strategic relationship, a formal strategic dialogue between the GCC and the US. I wish to talk about the Arab Spring because Iran is exploiting it. I want to talk about the strategic context derived from the January 2012 US defense policy pivot into the Indian Ocean region because that prevents the GCC opportunities too. And I also want to share my views about what the GCC can and maybe should do relating to Iran and also for regional security. So Arab Spring. Arab Spring is a transition unprecedented since the European Spring of 1848, in my view. For the region, there has not been a single moment in history that has presented so many challenges, but also so much opportunity since the end of colonization. And these changes are affecting leaders and institutions across three dimensions, nationally, regionally, and globally. And we see change that is moral, physical, and conceptual. These changes extend to other countries inside Europe, also to China, Russia, the US, and also Iran. I believe that we're not seeing an Arab Spring, Arab transition, or an Arab awakening. It's none of these things, nor is it exclusively Arab. What I believe we're seeing is a global human transition, whereby people are pressing for their rights in a manner unprecedented in recent history. We've seen demonstrations across the globe. The human transition so far has tended to focus on the Arab world because arguably that's where the gap between the have-nots and the haves is the most alarming. It's also where most positive change can and should be found as better governance emerges. So for me, it's all about freedom freedom from suppression, and freedom for a better future for our children. And through the transition, the US has discovered that it has less influence, less directive power, and less effective information gathering in the region than some might have hoped, a matter that I think Iran is exploiting. History will determine whether the US response to Arab Spring was too much, too little, or about right not the current army of commentators who largely report superficialities and tend to predict the future in terms of sound bites about sound bites. Now, I mention this because I believe the multiple messages emanating from the US is confusing the people in the region. Let's talk about the US defense policy pivot. What concerns Washington today is that the policy strategy match, irrespective of who's in power in the White House and irrespective of the threat. So what has changed is the means available, the resources and the capabilities. We therefore need to change our ways in order to do more with the same or even less resources. 
we need more partnerships. The administration's January 2012 priorities for 21st century defense, defense guidance, demonstrates this point. It refers to a strategic pivot into the Indian Ocean region in order to, and I quote, focus on a broader range of challenges and opportunities, including the security and prosperity of the Asia Pacific. Now, the choke points of the Bab el-Mendeb, Suez Canal, Strait of Hormuz, and the Strait of Malacca, together with the rise of both India and China, means the Indian Ocean region will become the globe's busiest and most important trade interstate. India and China are rising powers and will likely wrestle for control of the region in order to protect the flow of resources to their increasing populations. Most of these resources come from the Middle East. World energy consumption is set to rise by 50% by 2030. And those of you who have read Robert Kaplan's book, Monsoon, will remember that he states that 40% of seaborne crude oil passes through the Straits of Hormuz in the West, and 50% of world merchant fleet capacity is hosted at the Strait of Malacca in the East. So the US approach, the new US approach, does not pivot the US out of the Middle East, it pivots the US into the Middle East and thus into the Indian Ocean region. It also focuses more on action rather than sustainment. And in effect, the US, in my view, is transitioning from a policy of confrontation to one of engagement and deterrence. This policy emphasizes building partnership capacity through assisting uh, neighbors and partners. The rising economies of India and China um, will help all. A rising tide lifts all boats. And that analogy can be applied to regional economies, but also to regional stability and security. Iran is threatening that stability and security. And if you want a US view, listen to the statements of the president, not the sound bites of the alleged experts. We have no issue with the Iranian people, per se. We have issue with the regime and we will not allow Iran to gain nuclear weapons. So please focus on our values and interests, for they will not change. And a read of our national security strategies over the last 10 to 30 years will prove that fact. Okay, what can the GCC do? What should the GCC do? Um, GCC partners will be asked and supported to do more. The GCC is perfectly positioned. Today, the opportunities for defense sales are arguably higher than ever before because the region is more volatile than ever. The GCC has progressively um, um, you know, advanced in terms of structure and mission over the decades, but only with the onset of new and significant threats to the member states in recent years, like Iran, and successes, like Yemen, has it truly galvanized as an institution to address a range of issues and strengthen utility. Political and financial unity is still a distance away. The GCC can and maybe should do the following. Deter. And Iran is a clear example of the GCC banding together as a defense pact to deter Iranian meddling, expansionism, and aggression. From political statements to integration of air defense, the deterrence role of the GCC as a grouping has expanded dramatically in recent years. For Iran, and looking to the wider Indian Ocean region, that expansion can continue to occur in strategic partnership with the US. The GCC can help counter Iranian influence 
and the asymmetric threat through things like effective command and control, a consolidative structure among defence ministers, a secure communications network, shared military intelligence, and of course an integrated air missile defence shield. Stabilise. Yemen is a good example of stabilisation with the added benefit of reducing Iranian meddling. The GCC stepped up with political influence and persuasion. It is clear that the GCC has a variety of tools to draw on and use as necessary, and they can do more. A future case for stabilisation may be Syria. The GCC states, in my view, see the Syria situation as rapidly destabilising and clearly linked to Iran. The GCC increasingly seems to support stabilisation measures to support the opposition. Uh, the GCC role in, in any such measures will be of great importance. Assist. The GCC role in leading the Friends of Yemen is well known, and the Friends met in Riyadh yesterday. Um, development is key in Yemen, but also in other key countries of the region to counter radicalization and to counter the Iranian narrative. I believe a similar multinational, uh, multilateral role of assistance may be called for in the case of maybe even Egypt and certainly Syria. This leadership role is natural and welcomed by struggling states. And the GCC has also launched a different kind of assistance effort that's about emergency and more about sustainment with Jordan and Morocco, and uh, more of that later. Mediate. The GCC role in resolving disputes has taken on greater urgency in recent years, whether by member states working through the GCC Secretariat or in support of international institutions like the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the Arab League, Istanbul Process for Afghanistan, or UN for Syria. The GCC has shown readiness to play this role in regional issues, and the US welcomes and encourages this. Outreach. The GCC has expanded its horizons by welcoming Jordan and Morocco as having a special relationship with this institution. While I do not see membership in the future for these two non-Gulf countries, I do believe this special relationship will be better defined and expanded for the benefit as well uh, of the GCC and of the nations concerned. Membership. Sustaining stability, economic viability, and political coordination may call for Yemen to be admitted as an associate but not full member of the GCC, attending relevant or maybe even all meetings. Yemen is the only country on the Arabian Peninsula not in the GCC, and Iranian influence in Yemen via the Houthis appears to be growing. Observer status and agreements. The GCC has maintained dialogues with the US and the EU for years. In the case of the latter, these dialogues have been regularized with moves to develop a variety of agreements. It is now time to establish a formal strategic dialogue between the GCC and the US that will contain a list of baskets for discussion, leading to some form of formal agreements. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank all of the um, speakers for staying within your time uh, requirements and covering uh, topics that are sorely addressed in the um, mainstream American media. Hardly ever mentioned uh, among the political pundits on the uh, Sunday TV talk shows, and uh, otherwise uh, ill-addressed, uh, if at all addressed. Uh, so thank each and every one of you. Now for the Q&A uh, session uh, and discussion, uh, 
again, if you don't have a three by five card, uh, hold your hand up. And if you do have one and have written a question, uh, also hold your hand up. Um, and I'll do my best to cover as many of the questions as have been submitted that were not directly addressed or even indirectly addressed by the members of the session here. Let me read them uh, in terms of a group of, of five or six so that the speakers can uh, begin thinking if they wish to make a point or, or a comment here. Uh, how can sovereign wealth funds be used to advance GCC interest? What is the likelihood of GCC countries having to lessen their oil exports due to increased domestic demand in the coming years? Um, a missile from Iran could strike the UAE inside of 40 seconds. With the acquisition of advanced air defense systems such as uh, those that have been purchased uh, in recent years by the UAE, including uh, Patriot Missile Defense. Is this enough uh, to deter Iran? If so, how is it enough? If not, what else is needed? Can you explain the situation in Yemen in terms of U.S. interest, and how and where are they aligned with uh, GCC interest? given uh, the uh, steadfastness of the GCC as a whole um, in terms of their unwillingness to um, admit uh, Yemen as a full uh, member. Uh, Professor Sharp touched on this somewhat. What types of jobs will be needed to absorb the youth bulge that uh, Andrew you address and recent university graduates Will Iran enrich its nuclear material up to weapons grade and have a Japan-like position and role of some ambiguity but also increased capacity? Or is this little more than a ruse to keep the GCC and the United States on its toes in reacting mm -hmm. to uh, Iranian needs, concerns, and initiatives? What is the likelihood of the proposed GCC Federation coming to fruition? And what are the uh, positions of the GCC members regarding uh, this Saudi Arabian initiative? These are excellent questions. Uh, perhaps, uh, Ode, you want to have a whack at the one about how can sovereign wealth funds be used to advance GCC interest? But the others are welcome to comment as well. well Dr. Abedino. I want to comment on what Joshua said. Uh, what are the motives for a GCC union? I think the economic reasons are very compelling. Uh, if you, I mean, Saudi Arabia is has the largest GDP in the region, and uh, if you have a truly economic union. Uh, that could provide more investments in certain countries like Oman, Bahrain. You can have people from Kuwait going to a larger market like the Saudi market, the same thing from the UAE. So I think economically it makes sense to have uh, an economic union and uh, it will be beneficial uh, for everyone, big markets, 
are good. They create more opportunities. Uh, it could help in the case of Bahrain, you know, Bahrainis could cross over to Saudi Arabia and work. It's only a matter of 45 minutes. Uh, as far as the GCC, I mean, the sovereign wealth, wealth funds have been independently operating. There's no coordination between SAMA or the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority or the Kuwait Investment Authority. However, if there is an economic union and they can pool their resources to create new industries, they have the resources. I mean, the challenge now is really how to create a labor force that is talented, that is skilled, that's innovative. First, you have to have a good education. Secondly, you have to have a wider market, and a GCC market is bigger than an individual uh, market. So I think in the area of new technologies, new investments, for example, in the area of transportation, a lot of innovation is necessary. And if this innovation is actualized, it could be used in America, it could, use, it could be used in China, it could be used in Japan, it could be everywhere. So I do feel the challenge is education, education, encouraging private entrepreneurs. The states and the region are making efforts to go after clean energy, green energy. But I, will, I would like to see individuals. I like to see people become like John D. Rockefeller. As I said before, you have traders but we don't have really industrialists. When you look uh, at the region, except for the national oil companies, you don't really have multinational Arab companies. You don't even, despite the two and a half trillion, or 2.2 trillion, I do not see a global Arab investment bank. You have Kuwaiti banks, you have Saudi banks, you have Omani banks, you have Bahraini banks. So there are plenty of opportunities to become more of a global player in the field of finance, in trading, and in venture capital. I mean, I would like to see an Arab Microsoft, and I would like to see a Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, that's the way ahead. If you really want to create jobs, if you want to eliminate unemployment, it has to come through industrialization, innovation, and it has to go beyond just exporting oil. Thank you. Um, what is the likelihood of the GCC countries having to lessen their oil exports due to increased domestic demand in their own economies in the next 10 years? Uh, perhaps uh, Mali, you and Rhonda mm -hmm. have a crack at that? Sure. Um, it is the case now that um, the uh, oil-producing countries uh, are using more of their revenues and more of their own commodity uh, in order to develop their economies, to uh, build infrastructure, to build opportunities for jobs and uh, uh, relevant education. As uh, Oda pointed out, there is a growing skills gap 
uh, in the region. The people who are unemployed and the jobs that are needed uh, don't have a good match. Um, and so there is more and more um, attention being put to uh, creating those um, uh, institutions that will uh, fill that gap. Uh, and that means more and more of the uh, oil revenues going uh, to um, uh, these institutions and these infrastructure needs and more and more of their own commodity being used uh, to fuel the growth of, of these economies. Um, that has in turn produced tremendous effort on the parts of uh, these same governments to come up with alternative uh, fuels, alternative um, uh, opportunities. Uh, uh, Rhonda just went through a, a wonderful um, itemization of the uh, alternative fuels uh, efforts, the renewable fuels efforts um, that would also have the impact of putting, of leaving more of the traditional hydrocarbons in the marketplace so that the very tight um, supply-demand equation that the world is, uh, is looking at uh, can, can have a little more stability and a little less volatility uh, in the marketplace. Um, so the governments recognize that these are at risk and uh, that the needs are growing and that uh, it's essential to um, create that skills uh, bank that will make it possible for the young people to have uh, opportunities, to have jobs, to have um, a better infrastructure with which to work. Great. Rhonda, you, you want to comment? Yeah, just a, a note. Um, if we were to look ahead 10 years from now, it's very difficult to say what the price of oil is going to be. My guess is it's going to be nowhere near what it is now, which is over $100 a barrel. It makes economic sense if you're producing oil to export it to get the most you possibly can for the exact reasons Molly was talking about, to be able to fuel your own internal economy. I think in the next 10 years, the renewable energy um, industry will take off like wildfire in the Middle East. And what you will see is the replacement of the renewable energy field, not only to diversify the economy, to provide jobs, as I mentioned, for the youth, and to provide energy resources. Remember, oil, petroleum, gas is a finite resource. That, you know, at some point, they're going to run out. And the better they are prepared for that, the more likely they're, they're, they'll be successful in the future. Yes, yes. I think renewable energy would lengthen the life of the oil resources, so it's in the interest of the GCC countries to have oil last for 200 years instead of 50 years. And therefore, when you look at alternative energy sources, it's uh, an opportunity for making investments that would give you a return on capital and that will also give you a new source of income. Thank you, uh, all three. Um, perhaps this one would go to you, um, Bob. And this is a missile from Iran could strike the UAE in 40 seconds and other GCC countries, perhaps not longer. With the acquisition uh, of advanced air, air defense system, such as the, the Patriot, is this enough to deter Iran? And if so, how so? And uh, that, though not asked, how do you read the um, Iranian annual seaborne exercises in the region of the Strait of Hormuz 
in their increased capacities regarding special operations, uh, namely undersea uh, activities, uh, as much as the GCC's offshore energy structure uh, is indeed beneath uh, the waters. Uh, Professor Sharpin, if one or the other want to comment on that. Okay. Um, I think the solution is a, you know, an air missile defense shield. Um, you know, Iran does pose a threat. Um, what Iran will do and where it will do it depends on where Iran sees the weakness, and uh, it won't necessarily um, try and attack the targets that people think it will attack. It'll probably go for the ones who least expect it. Um, I, I, uh, I can't talk in, in environments of a classified nature in terms of specifically the threat but you know, I think my earlier comment will, will, will stand stand alone. Uh, as far as you know, what Iran was doing with exercising, it was being you know provocative and uh, trying to stir up trouble. Um, you know, and and in in so doing, it's attempting to destabilise the region to determine some form of reaction and fragment um, the, the the group of countries that are currently uh, lined up, arguably in in opposition to their ex expansion efforts and their meddling and aggression. Um, so um, I, I think the solution is, is uh, some form of air defense shield. And, uh, and I believe that uh, Iran is, is trying every dirty tactic it can to generate some form of re reaction to give them an extra day to continue to progress their process towards gaining nuclear weapons. Joshua, would you like to uh, add something? Absolutely, sir. Well, not to that particular issue, but maybe if I could address the other question on the likelihood of GCC union. Yes. Would that be helpful? Sure. I think? Okay. Sure. Get that out of the way in one second. Um, look, there are a number of issues that, that where there are clear uh, reasons for greater cooperation, information sharing, uh, combined action. Uh, you have, you have uh, issues of human trafficking and drug smuggling in the Gulf. You have issues of, of how to deal with, with questions over, over legal approaches to defining citizenship and naturalization. They all have common interests, common goals in, in these areas, for the most part. Uh, healthcare and the environment, uh, health tourism, which is a big issue in the Gulf, uh, but, but also the, it's a common environment. There, certainly if Iran accomplishes its goal of a nuclear program, there's, there's environmental issues related to that that all of the GC nations are going to have to confront. And terrorism is always is always an issue where where greater combined effort is is welcome and necessary. So then you can conceive of a number of institutions that, that would be valuable uh, to to grow out of the G C Secretariat, uh, whether as standalone brick and mortar centers or as as informal cooperative mechanisms. And then you can imagine more, more uh, concrete efforts. There, was a, there, there were articles earlier this year suggesting that the, the GC Ministers of Interior had, had uh, discussed the, the need for a common police force or gendarmerie. Maybe not a police force in the terms of a domestic policing sense, a local policing sense, but in terms of more gendarmerie like you would get in, in Europe uh, as an attachment to Peninsula Shield. Um, so. There are many different gradations of union that can exist, many different gradations of cooperation beyond what already exists. 
and I think yeah, all those things will occur at some point. Will progress at some point. Um, how long that is, how long that takes to get there, I don't know. But the 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 Article Four of the GC Charter is very clear that the ultimate goal of of this this effort is union, is unity. So at some point down the road, I wouldn't be surprised if if there is a real political pact. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you, Joshua. Um, Andrew, uh, what types of jobs will be needed to absorb the youth bulge and recent university graduates to which you Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's a great question. I think uh, if we knew that, uh, we would probably take that and apply it to the U.S. first and then export it out to, uh, to the Gulf. Um, but, but you hit the nail on the head. That, that's, a, that, that's the golden question, I think. And I would kind of triple track it, I think, if I was, if I was advising one of the governments. Uh, I think you have to first try to find out where, where are the emerging markets. And some of the panelists here have touched on it. Uh, you have your tech sectors. You have your renew renewable energy sectors, transportation sectors. Where, where are the potential job markets that are going to be uh, 20, 30 years down the road, the places where the country's le country leadership wants to really start investing today? Then I think you have to start, regardless, investing, reinvesting, uh, expanded investment in your early and, and, and higher ed uh, programs. I think that there is an element, you know, we, we talk about the next Mark Zuckerberg, next Bill Gates. Do you remember what, what college did Bill Gates, Gates graduate from? What college did Mark Zuckerberg graduate from? They didn't graduate college, or maybe they did way down the road. These guys as freshmen, sophomores in, in, in school already had the mental capacity and the, the technical capacity to, to start companies that were gonna have incredible global reach and impact. So we're talking about, I think, there's a piece of that that's it's that inquisitive, question-inducing thinking. You know, how, how, do we, how do we apply programs, and I think we, we wrestle with this in the United States as well, but how do we get students at, at early ages to start asking those questions, to start, you know, uh, applying, being a little bit arrogant in their thinking, and, and, and starting to try things in an entrepreneurial fashion on their own. Uh, so both from a high, uh, an early ed and higher ed standpoint. And then finally, as again, I think Ms. Williamson mentioned, it's finding the mismatch currently with jobs and, and, and skill sets. There's clearly, at least to some level, a, a gap between uh, where jobs are in, in, in the Gulf and in, in current skill sets. So how can we provide some immediate vocational programs on the ground? I think State Department and, and the U.S. government does some of that. Uh, uh, already in, in, in the field, but how can we work collaboratively with the government on a larger scale to, to try to find where those gaps are and then to, to build skill sets for either current recent graduates or, frankly, for graduates who are older who need a transition skill sets? Yes, Oda? That is missing in the region. Speak up a little bit, if you will. You know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Ellison when they began their research or their inventiveness, there was capital that was willing, there were people who were willing to risk that capital. In the Middle East, you don't have risk capital. People are willing to buy a hotel. People are willing to, uh, uh, you know, trade, represent Toyota or Mercedes-Benz. So we need to create an environment where you have Arabs are talented as anyone else. And what is lacking in the region, and I see it, there are many American Arabs who have great ideas and would like to go back, but you don't find risk capital. Here, there's plenty of risk capital, and that's where the jobs have been created in the last 40 years. 
hundreds of thousands of jobs. So that's why I keep saying, you know, you have to come up with risk capital. Capital is available. The banks are very liquid. But very little money has gone to back entrepreneurs, venture capitalists. And that's what I think the U.S. can show the way. Coming back to the uh, GCC Iran fears of uh, threats, intimidation, uh, attack, uh, none of the speakers on the energy uh, portion of this discussion uh, brought in or made reference to another country in the Middle East already having uh, nuclear weapons. And when we call, or others call, for a nuclear-free, uh, nuclear weapons-free uh, Middle East environment, uh, somehow the eastern end of the Mediterranean doesn't come in uh, to, to the focus as such. And uh, to posit that were Iran to obtain this capacity, despite uh, opposition and opposition of others, uh, what would likely be the scenarios of other countries in the region feeling they have no choice but to do the same? In other words, if your neighbor has obtained a shotgun and you don't have one, would you be wise or unwise if you did not also uh, obtain a shotgun? Uh, perhaps uh, uh, Professor Sharp uh, could have first whack at it, and then uh, Rhonda and uh, Molly, because when you work on the energy questions, you've had the nuclear file. Yeah, that's a, that's a really hard question. Um, as a wonderful article or book by Kissinger who talks about the fact that we are in a, a place in history where for the last 60 or so years we have not used the weapon of maximum effect um, and that we have refrained from doing that because of the balance of possession of that weapon. Um, you know, if, if Iran gets nuclear weapons um, then clearly that balance changes. Um, and uh, you know, Kissinger talks about you know, lots of little nuclear wars. Um, you know, I think that's why we are saying we do not want Iran to have nuclear weapons. We, we don't mind nuclear technology. The UAE is developing it peacefully through an IAEA process. Um, that's fine. Um, but but you know, we do not trust the Iranian regime. Um, so um, I think a scenario of Iran gaining a nuclear weapon will lead to uh, a world very different than the one the day before they got it. Um, and uh, unlike maybe the restraint occurring in countries like the US, um, they're probably going to try and use it somewhere. And then all bets are off. Uh, Rhonda, uh, yeah, sure. Um, just a, it's a big issue, but on the IAEA issue, which I worked closely with when I was at the Department of Energy that was under the international portfolio. I think they've proven themselves to be a very legitimate international organization in not only monitoring this, but being able to solve some of the, the crises. As we've seen, if, we've re, if we believe what we hear, there is some sort of breakthrough in Iran. Um, Iran's the dip most difficult nut to crack, but I do have to say this. I mean, who gets to decide who has nuclear weapons or not? We do. Who's we? the United States. Of course, under the auspices of agreement of the whole international community, but we are the superpower. Now, 
Where we see this run into problem, of course, is when we enter and we bring Israel into the equation, which I think everybody knows has nuclear weapons, and you have Egypt next door who's pushing the nonproliferation treaty saying, we're going to sign it, why don't they sign it? The whole, if the neighbor has it, why don't we have it? Um, and so I think you have some, some overriding issues in the region there, but I think the ultimate question, India-Pakistan, uh, look at it all across the region, Korea, um, is, is the question of who gets it, why do they get it, and who gets to decide who gets it or not. But I do think there is a comprehensive agreement around the world that you cannot let nuclear weapons fall into the hands of people and leaders uh, that are not stable. Ergo, the uh, programs we've had to take weapons of mass destruction out of dictators' hands, Iraq, Libya, and others. I think we're talking about a very um, delicate and um, messy um, kind of situation. Um, a, a great deal depends on how people view the intent to acquire nuclear uh, expertise, sophistication, uh, perhaps capability, perhaps uh, even uh, develop uh, weapons-grade material, perhaps even develop weapons, perhaps even develop delivery systems capable uh, of uh, putting those weapons uh, on a target. The analysis of intent is um, uh, a, a very difficult uh, challenge that every capital on the planet has to deal with. How do you know what you can trust um, in, in terms of what is stated by any capital? And if there is not trust, then there will be continuing deep suspicion, as I think we're, we're seeing now globally uh, with, with respect to uh, Iranian intentions. Iran claims it does not seek nuclear weapons. And the world claims it does not want Iran to have nuclear weapons. So the space to negotiate is how can the world be satisfied that Iranian stated claims are in fact uh, uh, their goal and their, and their behavior? Uh, and how do you guard against the possibility that in simply saying uh, it, it does not seek nuclear weapons, um, it is not, in fact, buying time in order to develop that same uh, uh, technology, technology and capability. We're playing with fire. They're playing with fire. It's a very, very dangerous time. And uh, that has put an extra... Uh, burden, uh, an extra uh, weight on having the IAEA and its monitoring and inspection teams uh, have access. If in fact we, we have uh, some greater uh, access, that's, that's what's going to be necessary to, to test that intention question. And it will not be something that can be done once and everybody goes away, but it has to be a continuing monitoring. 
Um, and uh, this means ever more intrusive uh, access. That's a difficult thing for, for, for many uh, countries, uh, not just Iran, uh, to, to, um, uh, to tolerate. And it's very difficult for the rest of the world, and in particular its neighbors, um, to say, oh, well, okay, now we trust. That's what's at stake. It's not easy. It's not going to be easy. It's maybe never going to be easy. I would add the word transparent. Trust and transparent. Um, this question is for me, I believe. Um, why did this concept of pursuing greater union of and within the GCC occur at this time and in Riyadh? and articulated by King Abdullah. Uh, my answer would be the following. Uh, one, that the fact it came forth from Riyadh makes it itself, by definition, more important than if it came from any of the other GCC capitals, uh, simply because of the weight of Saudi Arabia, simply because Saudi Arabia is the one GCC member uh, whose borders uh, are adjacent to all the other five GCC members, and none of the other GCC capitals have that particular uh, position. It's also because of the size of Saudi Arabia's economy, the fact that it is a major regional power. It has 13 uh, borders. Uh, it has been a co-founder of more than a dozen regional, sub-regional, international organizations, and that it came from King Abdullah uh, perhaps merits the following as a consideration. Here's an individual in terms of all of the sons of the late King Abdulaziz, the founder of the modern third Saudi Arabian state. Uh, his father married the widow of one of the most powerful uh, chieftains in the kingdom that had opposed the Al Saud. And so this one son of Abdulaziz uh, knows more than any other the power of tribal and marital unification. Indeed, marriage is the quintessential institution of unification. Uh, thirdly, that particular tribe of his mother uh, had branches, has branches, elsewhere outside of the kingdom, in Bahrain, in Kuwait, in Syria, in Jordan, and Iraq, uh, to uh, a powerful uh, extent that does not always go acknowledged by the media there. Um, Another aspect of it is that when the caliphate of the Islamic world, headed by the Ottomans, came to an end in the 1920s, many Muslims worldwide were aghast that for the first time in nearly half of a millennia there would be no caliphate. And there were those who urged that his father give serious and favorable consideration to at least uh, being a nominee or a candidate for uh, the caliphate. But his father wisely refused 
uh, out of recognition uh, that the duties of a caliph for what is now a million and a half billion Muslims, uh, almost a quarter of uh, humanity, are enormous and massive and pervasive as they were, uh, he realized that just administering Saudi Arabia itself and its expanded realm uh, would almost be beyond any mortal's reach. But now in 2012, the world is profoundly different, and the role of the king of Saudi Arabia being the custodian of the two holy places, which are the epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage, of faith and spiritual devotion to between a fifth and a quarter of humanity um, have placed upon uh, the custodian of the two holy places uh, greater opportunities and challenges and possibilities uh, than ever before. And related to that is that from 1962 onward, he knew every American Secretary of Defense from the administration of John F. Kennedy's straight through to the present there. And as the head of the Saudi Arabian National Guard, uh, which was melded uh, on the backs of the country's most prominent uh, tribes, perhaps no one else in the Saudi Arabian government has personified what unification can do, can be, and entails. Uh, on top of which, there are the mounting problems of Syria and the mounting problems of Iraq. No Arab head of state has more deserved credentials of trust and confidence in Damascus and Baghdad than King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. Uh, to be sure, uh, there are the ongoing problems between Kuwait and Iraq, but uh, Saudi Arabia's support for Kuwait in those claims is of immense importance. To be sure, Yemen is the place of extended, massive, pervasive turmoil that uh, Professor Sharp uh, alluded to, but no country among the GCC countries has been more extensively and intensively involved in Yemen than Saudi Arabia. No other GCC head of state is fully aware of the implications of Yemen having 135,000 villages of fewer than 200 people. And when you have fewer than 200 people in a village, you have no school, you have no electric power plant, you often do not have a water system or a sewer system, and your roads are not exactly uh, paved. So Saudi Arabia's investment and involvement in Yemen exceeds that of all the others combined. And with regard to the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia stands fast with its opposition to Iran's ongoing occupation of three UAE islands. So there are all of these forces, factors, phenomena that came together in 2012 uh, that give uh, insight and perspective on why then, why Saudi Arabia, why Riyadh, why King Abdullah. Um, in terms of the last uh, few minutes that we have, 
regarding the question of unemployment that was touched on by several speakers here, how does one approach even resolving, if not resolving, ameliorating? If not ameliorating, then better managing this uh, problem that does not apply to Kuwait or to the Emirates or to Qatar, but it does apply to Saudi Arabia and to Oman and to Bahrain, where you don't have a system yet of a minimum wage, where you don't have a regional labor exchange uh, a unit that lets Omanis know of jobs in Kuwait. Um, and Saudi Arabians and Omanis and others have worked outside of that country in the past generation. How does one see this domestic stability, the youth bulge, the unemployment, and the ongoing quest for security and stability, these being the keys to peace and prosperity unfolding? A last comment from each of you would be welcomed. Who would go first? Oda? Uh, just to go back to the idea of a GCC union, all you have to do is ask a Kuwaiti what happened when Saddam took over Kuwait. If it wasn't for the Saudis, if it wasn't for King Fahd, if it wasn't for Saudi bases, we as Americans could not have kicked Saddam out of Kuwait. So it's a lesson that many of the GCC countries realize that ultimately, in terms of their security, a close relationship with Saudi Arabia is uh, necessary. Uh, Rhonda? Um, yes, I would just say um, that these countries can benefit from something that we can benefit from here in the United States, and that's something called vocational training. Mm. You know, we're talking about, we're studying how young people today really aren't getting great educations at colleges and universities, and I, I kind of believe that. Um, where does anybody really get any good experience when it comes to employment? It's in practical experiences. And so I think any kind of vocational um, type of training and actual practical experiences, internships, if you will, can actually provide practical training for some of these youth in the divisions in the areas in which they hopefully will eventually work. I'd like to um, uh, underscore uh, Rhonda's point there. I think um, it uh, is uh, essential that the um, world of industry have a strong voice in this matter. That It has to be consulted. It's going to be the employers. Uh, and uh, when industry says we need this, we need the following uh, 27 sets of skills that we're short of here and uh, around the world, that uh, those, uh, those needs need to be acknowledged uh, and met. Um, and so I would call for strong uh, cooperative uh, programs uh, to uh, be established with industry as partners so that uh, they can have uh, the skill sets uh, that they're looking for and, and the, the people who can uh, get the training uh, have jobs uh, uh, instead of uh, uh, merely the expectation that they can look for work. Mm. Great. Um, Professor Sharp? 
Um, yeah, I'd make two points, and I would make those points directly at leadership. And I would say, first of all, share the wealth, all right, locally, nationally, and regionally, because the differential between have and have not is enormous. And secondly, lead, don't rule. You know, create opportunity and enhance the human capital. Thank you. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I just add again. I think it's the, it's emerging markets, it's early higher ed, it's the vocational training, and then even I think countries for the immediate term can artificially stimulate and deal with some of the unemployment issues. Figure out from a leadership standpoint. We do this in the U.S. I mean, where where are needs right now? Uh, where do we want to reinvest? Is it is it in roads? Is it in domestic infrastructure? Is it in particular sectors of, of of the economy? And then have the government help to to supply that short term jobs or help incentivize your, your youth down particular paths and skill sets to create those jobs for the future. Joshua? Um, there's certainly overlapping competencies that, that can contribute to each other's good. Uh, you know, in Qatar, you have a lot of, of the mechanisms for developing good vocational programs, the Qatar Foundation and Sheikh Moses' efforts to work with consultancies from the West to develop those programs has been phenomenal. And in the United Arab Emirates, you have a lot of creative thinking about how to get young people into training and into apprenticeship programs. So there's a lot of, of ways that these different countries have approached the problem and a lot of ways that they can contribute to each other's solutions. Uh, and so I, I, I think that there's a, a wonderful opportunity there for them to work together. Thank you. Um, in closing, one person slipped a note to uh, ask that I remind the audience that among the other forces that uh, compelled the GCC to come into existence uh, when it did uh, were the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, um, barely a, an hour's flight away uh, from Muscat to um, Kabul, and of course the um, reaction and chaos and uncertainty and turmoil uh, occasioned by the Iranian revolution uh, when the, the Shah, so to speak, hit the fan in 1979. Uh, but also less noted uh, were the functional individuals, the unsung um, non-political leaders uh, in the GCC region who um, sought to have a center place for the uh, cooperation on standards, weights, measures, specifications, on electricity grids, on transportation issues, civil aviation, border issues, uh, food processing, food, food health uh, issues. These two had been longing uh, for a headquarters of some kind. And they all came together then uh, 1979 was a year like no other year in the Middle East with the Iranian Revolution, the hostage uh, taking of Americans, the siege of the Grand Mosque at Mecca, the quadrupling of the prices of, of oil as the turmoil continued in Iran, and also unrest in uh, Yemen and the conclusion of the Camp David uh, Treaty and, and those implications. Uh, here, you have all of those still, Afghanistan, and you have Yemen again, but you have Egypt also, and the unresolved issues of the Arab-Israeli conflict, 
in terms of Jordan, in terms of the Palestinians, first and foremost, in terms of their legitimate needs, concerns, rights, and, and objectives. Um, this is the end of this session. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope you have as well. Thank you for coming.